We're back after a what delay or or hiatus of a few weeks, couple of weeks due to workload, field season, and all sorts of chaos. Uh, we have episode fifty-one for your listening pleasure. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting as always is Tom Major. What have we got to break the uh, drought of podcasts for the people? We've got pythons, which is good. Because pythons are exciting, and um, python. Oh man, pythons are some of the best. Yeah, so um, we've got a paper about mysterious worm of pythons, and then we've got some stuff about pythons and the way they treat their eggs, which many people will know is a little bit different than most other snakes, but um, it might not be as different as we thought before. It's probably a um, interesting way of. <laughs> Teasing a, a without saying summary. too much. Yeah, oh, the cryptic, the cryptic abstract. They do some stuff, but not as much stuff as we maybe thought they would do. But nevertheless, what Sometimes. they're doing is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Partially. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, but yeah. No, we've uh, we've had a little bit of a time off, uh, just because it's been pretty manic. Uh, lots of snakes doing lots of snake stuff. And... Um, Lots of bureaucrats making life difficult. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're back doing what is fun, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. What? So should we just just dive straight into paper one and just like just just worm our way into this wonderful world of pythons? Yeah, let's do it. So paper one, we have a paper by uh, Bruton, twenty thirteen. Arboreality, Excavation and Active Foraging, Novel Observations of Radio Tract Womapythons. Uh, it was published in the Memoirs of the Queensland Museum. So Womapythons, mysterious Australian snake living in the sort of arid, semi-arid areas of Australia. Not much is known. Low density, presumed. And they haven't really had much work done on them. They're relatively tricky to find if they're low density and spending some of their time underground. Yeah. And this paper's really sort of, okay, what do we know? And uh, what have we found from following them around with some radio telemetry? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an exciting title for a paper, isn't it? Um, Arboreality, Excavation and Active Foraging, Novel Observations of Radio Tract Wormapythons. So they say themselves... Go on. It's like a natural history note on steroids, this. Yes, yeah, it is, so yeah. These are all these sort of weird and wonderful questions that maybe people have known, but not really documented particularly thoroughly. Yeah. Let's see what we can find out. This is what we found out. I, re- I think it's great. Yeah, it's exciting. So, um, Woma pythons, I mean, how would you describe Woma python? They're massive, aren't they? They're 2.5 yep. metres long, big adults. Well, um, chunky too. It's not like a slim, a slim snake. They're pretty, they're pretty beefy. Yeah, they're definitely a substantial beast, and um, they're very stripy, which is cool. They've got this orange head, and then going down the body, they've got um, sort of stripes: one light, one dark, one light, one dark, one light, one dark. And um, the colour's a little bit variable, but generally they're sort of rusty grey with like a creamy stripe as well. So they're quite striking snakes, and sometimes they have a little bit of sort of eyeshadow on their eye so the orange head has got like a little bit of darker coloured eyeshadow and they've got kind of a quizzical expression on their face I think it's fair to say yeah quizzical 
Yeah, no, that's that's a good description. <laughs> I, I'm I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> and um, yeah, like you said, there are these big, powerful predators, but they like it dry. Found in arid, semi-arid Central Australia, and um, yeah, presumed to be at low density, but they are probably quite sneaky as well. And um, a lot of their range I... doesn't have humans at dense populations, so there aren't a lot of people around to actually see these snakes when they are around. Yeah, first three words in my notes are large, sneaky snakes. Yeah, they are. They're big and sneaky. And um, <laughs> the majority of the time when they're seen, they're seen after someone's disturbed them. So maybe someone's been, you know, digging a hole or perhaps they're just crossing a road. So it's rare that you actually get to see them doing something natural. It's usually when they've been kind of disturbed. And obviously a snake that's seen a person isn't going to behave as a snake that hasn't seen a person would. And mm. um, so, yeah, hence why... It's good to do some radio telemetry. But um, from what people have seen, both in captive and wild snakes, they seem to be mostly fossorial, hanging around in mammal burrows and digging little holes with their funny heads. And um, yeah, the authors of this paper had an opportunity to study 12 snakes with radio telemetry and um, maybe cast aside some of our preconceptions about Wemmer pythons and also probably confirm some of our preconceptions about Wemmer pythons simultaneously. Yeah, it's nice to be able to, like, the captive stuff is all well and good, but, you know, captive animals are captive animals. They're not wild animals, and you don't know how those sort of behaviours transfer across. So having that confirmation in the wild with free-ranging animals is a big deal. Yeah, 100%. This was a pretty intense study, too. They're they're talking about tracking these these snakes for either the best part of the year or, or even over a year for some individuals, and tracking them down every couple of days, see what they're up to, see where they're at. And, I mean, the first thing I think that was quite striking is how secretive they are. Because they Mm. were only actually ever found out of some sort of shelter site, 5% of all those tracks. So you've got 12 individuals tracked for the best part of a year, every other day, and only 5% of those tracks you see in a snake. Mm. That's a lot of effort. (laughs) Yeah, and these are snakes on a reserve in southern um southern queensland called well actually they don't say the name of the reserve i don't think they're just on a conservation reserve near the town of st george in southern queensland queensland so um it's like we said it's subtropical there um but it's also uh unusual for the range of womers in that it's kind of um what's the word it's like a uh sort of semi-forested belt So they call it the Brigolo Belt that this is within, uh, which is a sort of belt of grass, not just grassland, but also, well, acacia wooded grassland that runs kind of between tropical rainforests of the coast and the semi-arid interior of Queensland. So while these are womers which are in an arid environment, they're probably less arid than the majority of other womer pythons which occur further to the west. So Mm. there are trees and stuff, and it's important to contextualise that habitat. Because when you find out what these womers are getting up to, it will kind of all become clear. But um, yeah. I think it's it's good to mention that the, the behaviours that we're talking about here for these Wemer pythons may not necessarily um, transfer onto the ecology of their more Western cousins because um, the habitat's quite different and uh, there's some trees around. And trees provide shade, so maybe you can be out and, out and about more frequently without getting cooked. Yeah, more exactly. cover, so maybe you can be more active without some sort of predator coming and taking you out. 
And of yeah. course, there's going to be different prey availability as well because some mm. animals like trees and some animals don't. So, yeah. But as you said, regardless of the fact there are trees, they spend 95% of their time underground, it would seem. Uh, well, 74% underground. Oh. I think the remaining, the difference there was like in shelter that's not underground. So under logs, under rocks, in bushes, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they do love to be underground, it seems. Mm. And that's their top place. Yeah, and they also... Previous studies on Womers have kind of suggested that they have a penchant for eating animals which are quite adorable. Would you agree? Well, the cuter the animal, the sweeter it is, right? That's that's pretty much it. They love that sweet, yeah. sweet nectar. The um, Yeah, so previous studies have discovered they eat a mixture of mammals and reptiles. So things like hares quite an endearing creature rats um controversial very endearing yeah i think anyone who's actually interacted with a rat will agree they're quite sweet um mice obviously a mini rat just a rat but cuter uh and bearded dragons (laughs) and blue tongue skinks which are both known to be very strokeable lizards so um yeah these waymo pythons are eating delicious animals but also interestingly i mean obviously a lot of those uh, non-native species, the rats and mice and stuff. There's no native rats and mice in Australia, are there? They're, they're introduced, so they're obviously they're obviously uh, uh, taking advantage of that resource as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I don't know if there are any native rodents. Oh right. Oh, there are there are rodents. Okay, there's rodents, but they're not like the rat and the mouse, as in uh, what was it? Rats, Novegicus, yeah, and Mus. Musculus. <laughs> is that mm-hmm. what it is? Yeah. Musculus, I think. Mus musculus. Yeah, no, so they do have indigenous... Uh, Australia has a large number of indigenous rodents, all from the family Muridae. These are presumed to arrive to have arrived within the last four million years from Asia. But the black rat, brown rat, Pacific rat and house mouse were, in, were accidentally introduced to Australia with European settlement. Uh, so, they, and, and rabbits too, I would presume. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and so the rats that they're eating and the mice they're eating are introduced. The hare is Lepus capensis. What's your game, Lepus capensis? Well, it's not a rodent. Oh, no, it's native to Africa and Arabia. So, yeah. There we go. All the mammals they're eating are introduced. So I was partially right, but then I went too far and I said, Australia doesn't have any any native rodents, and it does. So many. really, Womers are doing a sort of ecological service, trying to, you know, subdue these uh, invasive species. Yeah, and they know they're doing that. That's why they're doing it. They're doing it because yeah, they got, they're have, brave. Yeah, they have a passion for native species, yeah. but that doesn't preclude them eating native species. So they do. Well, no, that's why they like them so much. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they prefer. They don't want the rats out competing the uh, the skinks. No. But, but we'll at come the same back. time, they can't resist a tasty skink meal. No, yeah. They're only, they're only Womer. <laughs> so yeah, we're in this Brigolo belt on the eastern side of Australia and uh, tracking some Womer pythons and finding out what they get up to. And one of the things which was unknown about Womer pythons, which was it was suspected that they might be ambush predators, but it was also suspected that they might be active foragers. And it was a bit unknown because... Um, as we said earlier, no one had really ever witnessed in the wild what they do. And um, mm. another thing was 
There was some suspicion that they used this squashing technique as well as constriction. So they go, it was a suggestion that they were using constriction sometimes, but also that they might use this squashing technique, which people have witnessed in captivity, where they basically just push something against the side of a wall or a burrow until it has been squeezed. I mean, whether or not that works by um, mangling the animal to death or whether it works in a similar way to constriction where blood flow is diminished to a point where the animal succumbs to a lack of oxygen in its little brain. I don't know. It could be a bit of both. Um, Probably a bit of both. Mm. It's a very strange thing to think about, though, because you... Again, it makes a lot of sense in a sort of restrictive burrow sort of scenario, but it doesn't sound very elegant. No, it's really brutal as well. Really brutal. But yeah, as you said, we, these 12 boomers retract. And um, should we talk a bit about the behaviours that were observed? Yeah, I think, we ju- I think we just go straight into results and just start detailing some stuff. Mm. Um, like, do we want, I mean, we talked about feeding and, and uh, prey items. Do we want to just say what they were found to be eating and sort yeah. of what they're doing on that front? Yeah, let's do it. So these guys, they do seem to prefer, well, prefer is not really the correct term because you need an idea of what's available to be able to infer preference. But the tracked womers seem to be eating mostly reptile prey. And getting this reptile prey while they're sleeping. So that's quite a neat thing. They're waiting until reptiles are chilling out, nice and relaxed, sleeping on a branch or something like that, sneaking up, taking them. Never yeah. saw it coming. Pretty sly. They um they seem to be following scent trails to lizards. Um and these were things like you know, these are serious lizards. No, 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 not something you want to necessarily tangle with unless you're a serious predator. They've got um, adult sand goannas. So there's a big lizard, which is Varanus guldii. Um, eastern bearded dragons, which is Pagona barbata. And one of them regurgitated a um, blue tongue skink, which is... Mm. I thought it was Taliqua rugosa, but it says here E rugosa. Yeah, they're eating... So it's not a blue tongue skink, it's a... Uh, Shingleback skink. Um, but yeah, you know, they're eating some pretty serious lizards. And uh, as you said, it wasn't entirely reptiles. There were um, there was one Womo which ate a uh, hare. And there's a good photo mm. in the paper of a big snake eating a big hare, which is quite cool. Yeah, I mean, these are decent... These are big prey items they're taking. Uh, did they give an estimate of, like, weight of python to weight of the... No, they didn't, did they? No, because I didn't they don't see know that. the weight of the prey. That's mm. a shame. But it's gotta be it's gotta be up there because what are these guys weighing? They're weighing between uh, what do we got? What do we got? Sort of one and a half kilograms to three and a half kilograms? Yeah. And then how how much do you reckon a sort of decent sized varanid would weigh? Um Oof. I don't know for Sanguana, but I mean it. I mean, it could potentially weigh a kilogram, maybe. Yeah, and then a hair. A hair's got to be just sub of a kilogram, right? Yeah, maybe 800 grams. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they're probably, you know, they're probably pushing close to half Near. their body weight in some of these meals. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, that's sort of classic python. And it's not surprising after they've they're done still that. still remarkable. Yeah, they were usually moving around 250 metres, that's kind of an average, to a shelter site after they've eaten, finding somewhere to rest up. And then after the meals, they were staying immobile for between 0 and 27 days, but with an average of 11 days. So um, 
yeah, they generally took qu- quite a significant portion of time to just sit and digest before they left yeah. their shelter site and moved on. Okay, and just thinking back to that uh, study on Boiga Irregularis and how they sort of spent, was it three to five days? Yes. Sort of chilling out before yeah. before they sort of went back on the active active pursuit of prey. Mm. Like, it's, it's quite interesting. He's got different snakes, different snake lifestyles, but having different implications for their sort of activity patterns. So I quite like that because you think about it logically, bigger snake, bigger prey, more infrequent predations and sort of longer downtimes between predations. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it makes perfect sense, really. And um, yeah, so they were eating all sorts of stuff, mostly reptiles and... um, Mostly at night as well. Mostly at night. And they also saw 10 instances of these snakes demonstrating arboreal behaviours. So they were going into trees. Mm. And this was by no means a common occurrence. From 1,680 radio tracking events, they only saw it 10 times. But um, they saw it in both small and large snakes. And uh, yeah, when they were up in trees, they were either eating lizards or it seemed like on their way back or to eating lizards. Um, <laughs> back from or to yeah. lizards, yeah. So they and were again all at night time again. So it's not like a basking behavior or, or sheltering behavior, something like that. No, it is. You know, these were active animals at those times. Yeah, they were going up there for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to try and catch something to eat. And um, yeah, at least a couple of times they were successful, which is cool because this is a snake which doesn't really have any of the kind of traditional adaptations for being in trees. You'd think, you know, dorsolaterally flattened body, long tail, um, general kind of slender appearance. But the snakes, Mm. they don't have any of that. They just look like these big, thick set, you know, they look like filthy ground ground snakes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they like to roll around in the mud. They do. But... um, yeah, they were mostly eating eastern bearded dragons up in the trees uh, while the bearded dragons were having a little sleepy time, little roost up there. The snakes would go up, gobble them down. But what they did notice was that the snakes were ignoring the smaller agamid lizards. So, um, mm. agamid lizards, hard to say. Agamid lizards, smaller agamid, smaller agamids. That's better. Um, <laughs> assume, presumably, because they're not worth the energy. It's, you know, it's probably quite energetically costly to lug this fat tube up a tree and once you get up there if you're just going to eat a small lizard you're wasting your time so they were up there looking for these big fat bearded dragons which are much more substantial meal um so yeah wormer pythons not just fossorial not just ground dwelling but they still are ground dwelling and they did see some interesting observations of them digging holes didn't they yes yes they did which so there's a sort of two sort of schools of thought with exactly what they're doing there, right? Because it seems to be that some of them, maybe they're sort of digging little holes for a little bit of a shelter site, something along those lines. But they may not be making these burrows just completely out of nothing. They may be using pre-existing burrows, maybe made by mammals or whatever, and sort of widening them and making them suitable for themselves. Yeah? Yeah. So, perhaps not the greatest of diggers, or perhaps just very efficient, taking yeah. advantage of, you know, existing structures. Yeah, well, if a mammal's already been scrabbling around in the dirt digging a hole, 
the intelligent snake is going to come along and just think, well, I could start a hole from scratch just using my blunt head as a tool, which can't be very efficient. Or I can just find one that's already been dug and get a few head scoops out and then go in there. And there is some Hmm. suggestion that you said that they were doing this as part of a hunting strategy. And um, they do mention in the paper that they have probably got a quite skewed impression of how these snakes catch food simply because things that go on underground cannot be observed. So not not easily. No, no. not without some kind of headlight camera on a Woma python, which probably would interfere with their ability to dig these holes. Um, yeah. But there was one occasion where a sangoana was seen nearby and the Woma they think was probably aware of it and was kind of digging a hole. But the sangoana was too sneaky and got away. So there's some suggestion that they were digging these holes to catch prey. Well, and critically, during that digging, there was some sort of caudal, what do they say, caudal jerking motions. So, like, maybe that's the sort of caudal lure sort of thing going on there. So, sort of suggesting that it was a prey-searching behavior for that for that lizard that was nearby. So, it was more than just proximity. There were other behavioral things to do with that snake that was mm. suggesting hunting as opposed to just digging a shower site yeah my so my impression of that is that um they do suggest it may be called alluring but i don't think they themselves actually believe that um Mm. i think it's like an excitation behavior where the snake's just super g'd up and is like inadvertently wiggling its tail maybe it has a function but um it could just be a a sort of byproduct product of the digging action is what you're getting at Yeah. yeah So, like, the snake's all G'd up. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get some food. And then its tail just starts going like crazy. Because um, <laughs> it could be, you know, it could have a, it may well have a function. Perhaps it's like a, it could be a defensive caudal lure, maybe. And it's in case the snake runs into trouble, it feels something on its tail before it feels it on its guts. But, um, yeah, yeah, maybe. Because, I mean, it's a pretty maybe. vulnerable position to be in with your head in a hole looking for a sangoan and anything could happen behind you. Yeah. No, that's true. Mm. But yeah, the, the the sort of function of that's unclear. And I've seen in other papers, there's been stuff about other snakes doing that. Um, and yeah, it's different because caudal luring generally is like an ambush predatory thing where the snake's motionless, would, the tail's yeah. near the head and it's wiggling around like a delicious little invertebrate. But um, It is yeah. weird in an active foraging sort of setting because the animal's going to be more aware of this thing trying to dig it out of a hole than it is a bit of tail movement somewhere else. Mm. Unless it's like a yeah, perhaps. Double, your yeah, chan- yeah, yeah. double your chances of getting something. So lure with one end, hunt with the other end. It's like <laughs> Just a- wait for something to latch onto the tail yeah. and you can come back out the hole and finish yeah. it off. Yeah. It's like a Swiss army knife <laughs> snake. Yeah. Uh. But um, from what they saw anyway, they seem to be predominantly active foragers, intercepting and following prey, trend- prey scents. But also uh, sometimes there was one instance where one sat in wait for a... Sangoana in a log shelter site, which obviously smelt like Sangoana. So they're doing a bit of both, but it seems predominantly probably actively foraging around trees and holes, looking for their delicious lizard prey. Yeah. I think I think really the whole paper just speaks of them being a little bit more adaptable than perhaps people or their, their morphology would lead you to believe. You yeah. Know, arboreal behavior, digging, that's pretty... Two pretty distinct ways about living your lives, and and these guys seem to be doing both with relative success. I mean, they have to be if they're spending that much time underground. It has to be paying off. Well, this is it. Yeah, they wouldn't do it for no reason. 
Yeah, and we know the arboreal behaviour is paying off because these these guys saw it, photographed it, and have described it in in detail. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting to wonder about um, like the hares. Are hares like rabbits in that they live in burrows? I'm assuming they are. I don't know. Hares hares tend to live in. Um, oh god, what do you call them? They're not proper holes. They're like uh, grooves they dig out. On the oh, other right. side of banks and stuff. Um, they have a name. They have a proper name. I've completely forgotten it. Yeah, not like full-blown burrow systems. But uh, for all I know, hares in Australia do. Mm. Yeah, just wondering who's digging these burrows that they're re-excavating. Because obviously there's some kind of um, sort of uh, ecological necessity for there to be mammals around, for these snakes to be behaving the way they are. Just wondering which yeah. mammals it was that they could thank for their... Uh, Little hidey holes. <laughs> Probably the ones they're eating, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> don't overexploit that resource, guys. We won't have any holes to live in. Um, well, that's the thing. That's why they're balancing it up in other places with invasive species. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Woma pythons. Um, this is the only paper that we could find on their ecology. We wanted to do a whole Woma python episode, and we have done for ages. But uh, we had a real trouble. Well, we had a difficult time finding papers to do. But um, we were put onto this one by Ross McGibbon. So thank you, Ross, for the yeah, heads up. Yeah, it's a paper. It's, 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 it's got some good baseline data in there. It's the sort of information you need prior to doing something more intensive on, on these sort of snakes. Um, yeah. yeah, you sort of said there's a caveat of, okay, how representative is it? of Womas is it but um, even even with that caveat super super interesting and super super important for future studies yeah so um, and loads of good pictures which is always a plus yeah loads of good pictures yeah very entertaining pictures lots of pictures of Womas in trees there's a photo of one of the uh, authors with a Woma python wrapping up a lizard in the background and the author looks very excited I love stuff like that. It's <laughs> exactly it's what I do. Selfie with the worrying <laughs> lizard. <laughs> Hashtag field work. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Exciting field observations. That's yeah. dude, they just make your day. They yeah, make they your do. week. Who they am I do. kidding? Um right, so Wormers lay eggs. Here's paper two. Brashes, Donado. That was your that was your segue. <laughs> yeah. It was flawless. It was flawless, I, wasn't it? It's flawless. I feel bad drawing attention to it, but yeah. like you can't get away without without some sort of compliment. Yeah, I know. Or <laughs> or savage criticism, depending on how I perform. <laughs> which is fine, I'm ready for it. Um so this one's by Brashears and Donado, twenty fifteen. Facultative thermogenesis during brooding is not the norm among pythons. Journal of Comparative Physiology. Uh Yes. Sorry, that confused me because the uh, the issue and the, um, what is it? Uh, what are those two numbers? Volume. Volume was 201 and then in brackets 8, which looked like 2018 and it's kind of spamming out. Uh, but it's actually a 2015 paper. Yeah. 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 I did say yeah. 2015, but then I got confused when I got to the end. Anyway, um, pythons, they're laying eggs. They're egg layers. No, they're not boas. Not to be confused with boas who give birth to fully developed live young. Pythons lay eggs, and they are famous for wrapping up their eggs and sitting on them during development. Many people will have seen pictures of this happening. Um, royal pythons are yeah. 
one such snake. I actually had the opportunity to see a royal python sitting on her eggs at the zoo last year. It was awesome. She even came off them to go and bask, get warm, and then went back down, which was really cool. Um, so they're good mothers, pythons. and um, They put the effort in. Yeah. Yeah. And so, which is not super super common for snakes, right? Is that fair no. to say? Yeah, I think it's definitely can, not the norm. I don't know. My my knowledge of this sort of stuff is so heavily skewed to one region that it doesn't really bear mentioning. Well, so I think, um, I think the vast majority of egg laying species, because obviously, like pythons do this, but there aren't really that many pythons. And you know, obviously, you know, king cobras do this, um, right? Malayan, Malayan pit, pit vipers. vipers. <laughs> yeah. King, you owe me a coke. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think. But see, that's where my, no- my that's where my knowledge ends because, for all I know, bushmasters do or something like that. But um, I wouldn't know. Yeah, because bushmasters are one of the weird vipers that lays eggs, aren't they? Hmm. I don't know whether they do or not. I don't know if anyone knows. Does anyone know? If you know, let us know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. I'm not sure. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but um, maybe given time, I would be able to. I don't know. But, you know, I don't know of any col- colubrids that do this, and they're all laying eggs. Um, mm, that's what I mean. But there are so many species out there that I really wouldn't be surprised if it's more widespread than we know of, just because it's really hard to observe, especially in fossorial species. Imagine if sunbeam snakes did it. We'd never know. No. We don't, I, don't, I don't even know if... They're just full of mysteries, those guys. I don't even know if they lay eggs, to be honest. And I'm sure somebody does know that. They do lay eggs, I think. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they do. They can lay up to 10 eggs at a time. Whoa. <laughs> Slow down there, sunbeams. <laughs> so they are laying eggs. But do they look after yeah. them? That's the question. Oh, well, I don't know. Actually, I think we would know that. I think we would know that because they have been bred in captivity. And I think it's an instinct which transfers over to captive snakes if they're if they're an egg protector they protect their eggs hmm okay yeah i mean but anyway facultative thermogenesis that's fun to say facultative thermogenesis basically functional hell of a term yeah functional warming of no functional heat creation yes and uh yeah snakes wiggle and make themselves warmer yeah, and this is something which a couple of pythons do, or a few pythons, it's fair to say. Uh, when incubating their eggs, they kind of shiver to generate heat and provide warmth to the embryos developing within the eggs. But this is a behaviour which has only been confirmed in Burmese pythons, uh, Indian rock pythons, carpet pythons, one, uh, a couple of subspecies of carpet python, one of which is the diamond python, um, and... It's kind of thought that those are species which are commonly in captivity, so we've had lots of chance to see that. And the kind of common conception was that, well, if those snakes are doing it, they're both pythons, and they are not that closely related. One is in the kind of um, Asian sort of radiation of pythons, and the other is in Australian. They're far apart, so you can see why people assumed if those two snakes, which are you know, they've been separated for a long time. Um, they both do it. Surely then most pythons will be doing it because it's... All the things of, in between, basically. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And with the assumption that it's some sort of ancestral state for pythons. Exactly. Too. Yeah. 
Um, and so in this paper, they set out to test that theory. Um, so just to get into just to get into sort of what Burmese pythons do, as an example, as the temperature cools, Burmese pythons start shivering and twitching around, and they try and get the temperature of the eggs back to around thirty-one point five degrees Celsius. So as the air cools in the place where the python is, more and more of this twitching goes on, this thermogenesis. And they're trying to warm up the eggs, keep them at the right temperature for the tiny embryos to develop into little baby snakes. Um, but uh, why am I saying but? Yeah, there are also. But known that's exactly what they do. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, exactly yeah. what they do. Uh, but there are species which are known not to do this. Um, so rock pythons, python sea bay from um, Africa, they're not doing it. Uh, python regius, the royal python or ball python, as they call them in America, they don't seem to do it. This is from previous studies, and uh, reticulated pythons don't do it. And nor which are from Asia, and water pythons from Australia, Liasis fuscus, they don't do it. Children's pythons don't do it, uh, and Theresia childrenii, that's another Australian one. And so, um, yeah, there's a variety of pythons which don't do it, as but well these, as a, a few that do. These ones are not doing it. They're still sitting with the eggs and holding them together and just sort of protecting them, right? Yes. That what they're not doing is the thermogenesis in particular there's still egg defense and like energy expended to protect the nest yes as far as i know there is no python that doesn't sit on the eggs um mm. but you know that might not be the case um so that sort of is why you need to put a little bit more effort into studying something like this because just pro provided a python's sitting on the eggs doesn't mean that it's providing any sort of thermal benefit to those eggs yeah you need to try and tease apart those two behaviors yeah, exactly. You got to think like to things which would eat eggs, you know, like a small mammal or or a um, a lizard, something like a monitor lizard, for example, if you're in Australia or or Asia, um, or, or even Africa. Yeah, tegu. Yeah, although there's no pythons in tegu country, apart from in Florida. Apart from in Florida, uh, well, where they meet of they the invasive species. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So yeah. So the Burmese pythons in Florida defending their eggs from tegus, which would otherwise eat them. Perfect example. Um, <laughs> nice save. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's what I was thinking of when I brought them up, to be honest. Oh, really? That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's amazing, yeah. So uh, that just really pangs of the bias in invasive species publishing in herpetology, doesn't it? Wow. But, um, you know, people love that stuff, don't they? They do, they do. So, yeah, you know, what I'm trying to say is, a big adult female python of any species sitting on its eggs is going to represent a serious threat to most of the things which are going to try and eat those eggs. So it's not as if they're doing nothing, as you say. They're not just sitting on the eggs yeah. to keep them warm. They're sitting on the eggs to defend them, which they probably do extremely well. Um, but in this paper, they wanted to see whether or not some other species of python, which had either been, had either sort of, well, I think there was an opinion on some of them already in the literature as to whether or not they did facultative thermogenesis some of them there wasn't and they just wanted to kind of confirm whether or not just a few different species did it from different places and kind of get a slightly better understanding of how this behavior was spread amongst the phylogeny of pythons yeah so, that's exactly it Ex expand the knowledge it's it's we got this principle how far does it run yeah 
Exactly. So over a two breeding season in 2007-2008, they had a bunch of captive pythons from... There's so 18 total 18, brooding yeah. females, yeah, representing six species. Um, three Aspidites melanocephalus, which is the black-headed python, same genus as the worm as we were just talking about. Um, three Aspidites ramsei, which is, of course, the worm python we were just talking about. Um, two Bothrachylus boa, which is the um, Bismarck the, ringed python. Bismarck ringed python, thank you. And the three Morelia spilotoshanii, which I think is the jungle carpet python. Yep. Uh, uh, one Morelia viridis, which is the green tree python. Crazy looking bright green snake. And six classic python regius, the royal pythons. So, yeah. Little mix of different pythons all of which are um, probably relatively easy to get hold of for them because they are quite common in captive collections. And what they did was wait until they were ready to lay eggs, put them in sealed containers where they could lay their eggs, and the egg containers acted as a respirometer. So they'd shut the mother yeah, in Yeah, so when you egg. say sealed, you mean properly sealed. Properly sealed. no gas exchange bar the gas exchange, which can be actually measured. Yeah, and then they yeah. were they were allowing them fresh gas, which is good because animals need well, that to live. Um, but yeah, yeah, as you of say, course, but measuring everything that's going in and everything that's coming out. Yeah, they had yeah. a pipe in, piping in a nice bit of oxygen, uh, and they were removing the CO two from that air to get a fair representation of how much CO two the snakes were producing. And then they measure the air on its way back out to see how much CO two the snake had produced. And the kind of CO2 production can be used as a proxy of how hard the metabolism of the snake is working, you know, with the expectation that at cooler temperatures, snakes would be working harder and producing more CO2. And that would be because they were generating heat for their eggs. To maintain the temperature of the eggs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they'd measure the temperature, but they'd also, they'd measure the temperature within the nest box around the eggs and they'd also check to see whether or not the snakes were working hard and producing lots of CO2, getting all tuckered out, breathing hard, trying to make some heat for their eggs. Now, I think it's fair to say they didn't really find any conclusive evidence to suggest that any of these species were actually generating heat for their eggs. Uh, yeah, that's essentially it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's the one, one sentence summary. Yes. So that's it, really. I think it's the end of the podcast. <laughs> oh, well, we, can, we can go home. What do we, you know, we're 40 minutes in, we can just, just call it there. We yeah. both are home. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> um, yeah, so Bothrachylus boa, inconclusive. I think, yeah, there's also the point of there was pretty dramatic metabolic differences between different species. Yeah. Regardless of how much or the lack of thermogenesis, is there still a lot of species-specific variety, which is neat in itself because that does mean that, I mean, I suppose it's to be expected. I mean, different snakes have different ways of living and different uh, different setups, and they're you know from different uh, climactic environments, so they're going to have different metabolisms when they're put in the same temperature and setup. Yeah. So I so, guess that's to be expected. So which species had the kind of faster metabolisms? The faster metabolisms would be a higher use of oxygen, would it not? Yeah. So that would be these guys, Moralia, considerably higher, considerably higher use of oxygen, if I'm reading table two correctly. Yeah, certainly um, 
two of the um, jungle carpet pythons and also the uh, Bismarck ringed pythons as well. They were really yeah. sucking up that sweet, sweet O2. Whereas royal pythons, the one green tree python and the womers and to slightly less of an extent, the black-headed pythons, they barely even like oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need it. No, they don't really need just, it. They can, they can make do. They're post-oxygen. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that just, that's not really, I mean, it's interesting, and it does kind of confirm that royal pythons are just stone-cold chillers. Um, but yeah, there was, like you say, an interesting shift. And then, I, like you say, it speaks to the life history differences between these snakes, you know. Yes, and the um, contrast to where they're used to living to the, contra- yeah, in contrast to where they're actually put. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, one thing that was interesting about, um, the Bismarck ring pythons, they have a really weird way of coiling around the eggs, which I had not heard of before, where, you know, other snakes lay their eggs on the ground and then they coil around them. So they kind of form like a little top hat for, this, for the eggs. Um, mm. But the um, Bismarck ring pythons, they actually coil beneath the eggs and around the sides. So they're basically a little egg basket, which is quite intriguing. Um, it did stop them from getting proper temperature records on the eggs, though. It did. So it was a little bit inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. If they could have evolved something slightly different, it would have helped. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I wonder why they do that. Maybe it's a little bit damp where they are or something like that. They've got to keep them off the floor. Or maybe they're just, I don't know, a little quirk of evolution there. It's, it's quite interesting. Um, but, you know, despite the fact they couldn't measure the temperature, their um, metabolic rate didn't increase sufficiently at lower temperatures to suggest that they were producing any heat. So... You can say with some certainty that, um, yeah, they weren't actually doing thermogenesis. Similarly, royal pythons, they didn't seem to be creating any heat or expending much more energy at cooler temperatures, which would suggest any effort in making heat. Um, One thing they did say about royal pythons, which I thought was interesting, was that because it's an artificial nest chamber and they're pumping in air and pumping air out, there's quite a high turnover of air. So it's almost, it's not windy in there, but it's like... You know, there's a, probably a higher turnover Enriched, over there. perhaps. Yeah. If you if you had a had an animal in a burrow, perhaps, and it was a relatively sheltered burrow, the air exchange could be lower. Is that what you're sort of suggesting? And this was a yeah. heightened, more yeah, more more oxygen rich environment than perhaps what they'd be used to. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever gone under the covers in bed, you know that you very quickly run out of air. There's not hmm. very much air under there. Suddenly, it becomes uncomfortable. Um, and so I would suspect that a burrow where a royal python is likely to be incubating her eggs may experience a similar lack of airflow. And in that It'd case... It would be stuffy. It would be. It would be stuffy. And um, I think in that case, just even a little bit of heat generation would go a long way to heating the nest chamber. Um, so it is possible that there is some kind of slight mechanism for this, which has gone unnoticed by this experiment. Um, although... Yeah, you'd have to do a slightly different experiment to really unpick that. Um, The other snakes also, you know, the green tree python, all the others, they showed no sign of actually uh, convincingly creating heat, which, as we were talking about at the beginning, is a bit of a shock because many people had assumed that the reason these snakes cool the eggs, at least in part, was to keep them warm. And like we said, the other snakes which do it aren't closely related. So there was, you know, a suspicion that maybe it was widespread throughout pythons. One thing they yeah. say is um, 
Large size seems to be important for thermogenesis to have enough energy reserves to produce heat. So, you know, carpet pythons and um, diamond pythons are massive. Indian rock pythons are big, big snakes. So are Burmese pythons. So mm. it seems as though maybe you have to be a certain size. It's possible to, to have enough energy reserves. But then even that's reserve. not a guarantee to predict it actually occurring because then there was that previous study that suggested reticulated pythons don't do it. No, and neither do African rock pythons, neither do water pythons, which are absolutely right. gargantuan. So there are monsters that just don't. Yeah. But then at the same time, what if it's not a consistent thing? What if actually it is infrequent and it and it requires maybe certain stress levels or lack of stress levels? It requires a certain amount of food beforehand. And like while it's not a behavior that is done particularly frequently, maybe... They're still capable of it, and given the right situation, they will actually do it. But it's quite hard to. Rep- I mean, it's like pathogenesis or something like that. What are the what's the situation that you can force pathogenesis onto an animal? Good luck. It's not going to happen, really, is it? I mean, we. I don't think anybody really knows the sort of prerequisites for pathogenesis occurring. No, I think that's a good example. And that's very energy intensive. Um, and a sort of desperation thing. So I don't know. I, I wonder. I wonder whether there's more to this, or there's um, more subtlety in what prom- what sort of drives them to do it. Mm. Like, does there have to be a shock to the system? Maybe they get a really cold snap or a really cold day or something, and then they're like, "All oh, right, it's one of those years. It's one of those seasons," and the thermogenesis kicks in. I don't mm. know. Yeah, they might not I'm be just, reacting to immediate stimulus, rather something that else has happened. Yeah. Yeah, or chronic, or... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it's... One thing they do talk about, which I thought was quite interesting, was um, the fact that it might be cooler environments are necessary for developmental advantages to be conferred by facultative thermogenesis. So mm. the three species that do express this uh, thermogenesis... Um, they have distributions that are kind of at the northern or southern latitudinal limits of the python family. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, diamond pythons, it's cold where diamond pythons live. Um, and similarly, yeah, Burmese and uh, rock pythons, you know, they, they do experience... They have some high altitude areas, don't they? Yeah, they do, and they experience yeah. a little bit more of a... Um, seasonal shift in temperature while jungle carpet pythons as the name suggests you know they're from a much more equatorial region um so it could be that the jungle carpets that are from an equatorial place have no need to do this whereas their stability just lets them just cruise without it yeah nest you know the eggs take care of themselves temperature wise yeah 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 and um yeah it's like you say there's a lot we don't understand we don't understand how much this behavior costs the snakes um yeah Maybe one's, you know, maybe it's too costly. And maybe, like you say, it takes certain uh, situations well, you, to You have it off. Uh, sort of other behavioral ways to mitigate uh, the effect of the environment on eggs. I mean, just selecting where those eggs are laid or, or how sheltered they are, direct sunlight, you know, whatever. There's there's this multitude of uh, habitat or vegetation or undergrowth or... or you know, burrow characteristics that they could be seeking out. So, thermogenesis is not required. It's not that they're not capable of it, it's just that they really don't need it until they're pushed yeah. to a certain level. 
Do you know what would be interesting is to look at whether or not snakes which uh, do thermogenesis leave the nest more or less than ones that don't. Because you remember that African rock paper python where... African rock paper python? African rock oh, python yeah, paper. Yeah, those paper, paper pythons. Yeah, you know those little... Very delicate. Don't get them wet. Um, yeah, you know the, that paper where the African rock pythons were coming out of their burrows, getting warm, basking, and they and were even changing colour, weren't they, to get warmer... And then mm. they were going back down and getting back on the eggs. And I've seen royal pythons do that in captivity, come out, bask, go back. Now, I wonder if the ones which can facultatively thermogene uh, are actually doing that at all. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether or not it's kind of an alternative to the old bask and come back sort yeah. of state of affairs. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know, it's a very complicated thing to try and work out because... You, you know, these snakes are only going to be breeding probably once a year, right? I can't imagine that you can force these snakes into breeding multiple times a year. Um, don't think, I don't know about, I don't know about, I can't imagine so. Certainly not in the wild. I would imagine they're probably not even breeding once a year. Certainly, ethically, you wouldn't want to put them through that sort of stress. Mm. But, you know, so that limits how much you can do over a certain period of time. It, it's a hard sort of behavior to be working with because you just by virtue of getting these measurements have to be quite invasive with these animals and need quite a controlled environment if you want to do something like metabolic rates like this paper has done so there's a lot of difficult things to try and tackle um, and it isn't something that's very easily solved or looked at in the wild when they have the full breadth of behavioral options open to them yeah because I mean, the last thing you want to do in the wild is is go up to a nest that's defended by a python and start shoving temperature probes into it and whatnot. I mean, that'll stress a poor animal out, something fierce. And if it is something that you need to actually get into, like a burrow, you could end up changing the uh, the conditions of the burrow anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, really, really tough, really tough. Mm. But it's nice to see this paper's sort of providing a bit more info, spreading out what sort of species have been looked at and giving a better idea of of how sort of not widespread this behaviour is. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. You, you can think that pythons do this thing and then they must all do it, but as it turns out, no, it's not common at all. It's actually uncommon. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the ones that can do it, we should appreciate even more. So next time you see a Burmese python or see a photo of one, just take a moment to appreciate the fact that they can facultatively thermogene. <laughs> I don't know what the present sort of tense for it is. But yeah, it is cool and um, it is unusual. So yeah, cool paper that yeah, um, yeah sort of demystified this behaviour and showed that actually not everyone's doing it. So there you go. Pythons have many mysteries yet to be discovered. Oh boy, do they. Oh boy, do they. I so, mean, yeah. both papers, we're talking about... These animals are just mysterious because they're hard to study at the end of the day. You know, it takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of work hours to uh, to really find out what's going on in their lives. Yeah, and there's definitely a uh, disparity between the amount of money that's available to study pythons and the amount of interest that people have in them as well. Yeah, but the bright side is that I think pythons get a better, a better deal than some snakes. I think they're... I think there's more interest in some of these pythons than, say, I don't know, colubrid water snakes or something like that. Yeah, that's fair to say. So, speaking of, well, 
that's not a Kilimanjaro water snake. But <laughs> should we move on to our species of the bye week? Yeah, let's do it. Species okay. of the bye week. So uh, completely, completely different. Not not a python at all. Well, not no. even similar to a python apart from it is a snake um <laughs> yeah that's pretty much where the similarities end so but. the paper is Manisius paleo and passos 2019 brand new new polychromatic species of attractus from the eastern portion of the colombian andes published in copea mm. now the first Do you want to tell people why why you've picked this snake why did I pick this snake? Um, yeah. Well, it was discovered in 2019. That was the first prerequisite. Um, yeah. And then it was super jazzy and colourful and I loved it. Exactly. That's it, really all guy, there is to it. Like there's, there's polychromatic and then there's polychromatic and this is polychromatic. Mm-hmm. It is almost a full traffic like traffic light worth of colour. From yeah. your reds to your proper, like, really, really rich golden ambers to sort of muddier, greenier yellows. Not not full on green, but, you know, if you squint, maybe you could pretend it was green. And it's stripy too. I love stripy. Mm. And black and red Stylish. or black and orange is one of the best combinations. What is it, dorso-lateral? Dorso uh, yeah. Yeah? So along the body. Or is it just lateral? Go faster stripes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, the whole body has like, I don't know how many stripes that is. <laughs> Three? Uh, Three big fat stripes down the body. Some have one because obviously yeah. they're, they're polychromatic, so <laughs> you can't speak for all of them. Um, but yeah, and there's a variety of colors, like you say. Some have this like rich, rusty base color. Some have kind of a yellowy base color. Some have a sort of dark base color. Um, and yeah, they all have some form of striping down the body, but there's massive variety in the way these snakes look. And the same goes for their ventral patterns. Um, it's generally kind of a loose checkerboard, but they can be yellow, black, red, orange, really a multitude of colors. Um, some of them are even just gray. They didn't, the unlucky ones are just gray, but- um, No, it's, it's, not, it's not an unlucky thing. They're just not showy. Maybe, they're, they're modest. Sort of, yeah, modest. Tempered snakes. But uh, it's a sneaky snake. So one of the words in the paper very much at the beginning is cryptozoic. A cryptozoic oh, yeah. cryptozoic lifestyle. Oh, I have that highlighted as well. That's yeah. a good one. What? What does that mean? And apparently, according to Google, cryptozoic means living on the ground, but hidden in the leaf litter under stones or pieces of wood. Very uh, good. Yeah. So I don't know how that's different from fossorial. Maybe because well, fossorial's underground. But I always think fossorial's like leaf littery type as well. Uh, that's only because that's when you see fossorial species, but that's like not their dominant lifestyle. Mm, okay. And this is suggesting their dominant lifestyle is leaf litter as opposed to fossorial, but being seen in leaf litter. So, so um, what I'm what I'm thinking is you've got underground or flying and terrestrial is in between and then you can further yep. narrow it down you can have fossorial or terrestrial and cryptozoic is in between yes i quite like yes 
Yeah, is yes. that what we're going for? I mean, because once we've said it, Ben, that's it then. The whole scientific community has to adhere to this rule. So don't finalise well, that statement lightly. I mean, it's not a very good definition because leaf litter doesn't exist everywhere where the sky meets the land or the land meets the underground, more accurately, right? Because mm. you can't have a leaf litter snake out in the, in the sea. There'd be no leaf litter for it. Yeah, but you wouldn't say, you'd say, I don't bring the sea into this. That's just over-confusing things. We're strictly <laughs> talking about terrestrial animals. I mean, like, okay, the sand, the sand. Yeah, the sand is a le- legitimate, like, if you're in the desert, there's no leaf litter, so it just goes terrestrial to fossorial. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. Um, so this genus, the snake is in the genus Attractus, which is a widely distributed genus in the neotropical region, occurring from central Panama to northeastern Argentina. 140 species in this genus, which is the most Oof. species rich of any snake gen- genus, which is crazy. Is it? Yeah, according to the paper. I thought, I thought that ta- tan- Tantilla was. Didn't we say that about Tantilla? Maybe this one's overtaken it. Oh dear! <laughs> Just don't All worry right, about I'll, it. Don't overthink it. Okay, you look that up. I'll keep going. So many people probably hadn't heard of Attractus. I'll freely admit it was only vaguely familiar to me. But there's 140 species. So get on board. Start thinking about them. Look up this paper. Enjoy the photos of snakes. And this one is from northern Colombia, close to the Venezuelan border. Uh, three localities on the western slope of Cordillera Oriental in the Department of Santander, Colombia. And this is a region covered by cloud forest between 1,990 and 2,400 meters ASL. So we're at some pretty serious altitude here. And uh, the majority of these individuals were found under rocks in pasture-type savanna environments. So mostly grassy and rocky, but they're also found in forest and in blackberry crops, which suggests they're quite tolerant of a range of habitats and possibly actually quite tolerant of disturbance as well. And... uh, just yeah. jumping in with some in- info, 64, roughly, species of Tantilla. Well, that's so, nothing. It's a drop yeah, in the ocean. I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, to be honest, it's insignificant, isn't it? Yeah, it's, Tantilla. Uh, these guys blow it out of the water. That's why they call them Tantilla, no one cares. Um, yeah, yeah. that's so, what Tantilla means. Is, <laughs> oh, I forgot that snake exists, because there are so few species of it in its genus. <laughs> um Attractus marthae, that's what they've called this species. Martha's ground snake. Yep. Uh, yeah, so... How big was, are they? They're not... 277 millimetres was a holotype, an, an adult male. And the females can reach up to 346 millimetres SVL. The biggest male was mm. 307 millimetres SVL. So, you know, it's a 30 centimetre long snake minus the tail, which is, you know, it's proper And consistent... Snake. Well, I say consistent. There was dimorphism, but like the it was the females were consistently larger than yes. the males. Yeah, well, males. Consistency makes it sound like all the females were larger than all the males, which isn't the case because there well, is overlap. Some of them are growing. <laughs> I can't. Well, be exactly. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, that's <laughs> a, consistently isn't the right word, but the point is there was sexual dimorphism. Yeah, and the males reach maturity at a much smaller size than the females as well. Right. Yeah. Now. One thing about this paper, which is great, is they had a lot of natural history information on these snakes. Like, they didn't just find a new species. They found a new species and became experts on its ecology prior to publishing the description of the species, which is really cool. 
It's not something we mm. have, very often have the chance to say. Um, so they were finding them active in crepuscular periods. So the the time before dark, uh, between 5 and 6.30 in the evening. And they were generally associated with uh, very humid soils, humid loose soils with loads of earthworms about, which they... I really liked that uh, sentence they had. Presence of abundant earthworms that could constitute their main diet. Yeah, so they're not sure, but it's quite likely that they've just been yeah. munching on earthworms. I just I just love the idea of you finding these sort of snakes and like, all right, well, let's see what they like around here. And they just start digging and it's just filled with worms, just <laughs> worms everywhere. Like, yeah, snakes like these worms, don't they? <laughs> it, makes, it makes perfect sense. But yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just the imagery of, of finding huge quantities of worms. I don't know why more snakes don't eat worms. They probably do. Yeah, maybe they do. Um, Sunbeam snakes again. They're cryptozoic. Mm, certainly they are. Um, so they found maybe. some. They also found some eggs, which they lay under rocks, and uh, they took the trouble of putting them in captivity and hatching them out. And what was cool about that is that the babies from just one clutch demonstrated the same variability in color pattern as the kind of plethora of different colors of adults mm. they'd found. So. Yeah, you know, once one litter of babies, multiple different colours, which is always a really cool thing to see in a snake. And um, it's so great from a species. Okay, you're describing these species. We've got all these colour variants. How sure are you that they're all consistently the same species? Something like that confirms it perfectly, doesn't it? All right, absolutely polymorphic. You've got different colours from the same clutch. Okay, it's a colour variation within the species. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Um. Did they do any? Did they do any genetic stuff on this? Uh, no, I think it was all scale counts and morphology stuff, I believe. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Just so we've mentioned that. Um, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I got some stuff to talk about with that anyway. Ah. So uh, yeah, they actually also saw a mating ball of nine adults at one point, which was four male and five female snakes, all called together in a big sex pile under a rock. So. Uh, they also practice some kind of orgy-style mating rituals, at least at one time, As one place. many snakes I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's many snakes. It's, it's certainly relatively well documented in a number of snake species, right? Yeah. That's fair to say. Not that I can think... I can only think of... of Garter snakes. American yeah, I, I can't think of any others, snakes. actually. Yeah. Because do grass snakes oh. do it? I don't... No, I'm not as far as I'm aware. I don't know. There must be there must be a Eurasian species or African species that do it as well. Yeah, I'm sure there is, but I'm not sure because the whole thing with the garters is they come out of hibernation. They're just like, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll leave that up to people to find out. <laughs> yeah, I would be really interested. <laughs> that, that though. could be a, that could be a mystery. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I feel like if you if you're listening to this and thinking you idiots. I can think of X, Y, and Z species which mate in a big pile. I'd like to know. I feel like some water snakes might do it. Water snakes, yeah. Um, I just put in mating bull snakes. Um, and the first video is a Nat Geo video of anacondas. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, we've talked about that on the podcast. But again, that's, that's, still, that's still American. That's where... Um, that's all males, one female, though, isn't it, generally? Hmm. I thought that was similar to... Hmm. Anyway, let's not get bogged down. What were you going to say about the genetic stuff? Oh, I was... So this was just another paper I that has come up um, 
complete. I mean, this is you know we're done with species of bye week, are we? Right, we're on to like other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there was a there was a Chambers and Hillis paper that came out. I don't know, week or so ago. Um, the multi-species coalescence over split species in the case of geographically widespread taxa in systematic biology. Um, there's no point digging into details of methods and the sort of subtleties of it all because it's a little bit beyond me. Um, but the main point of it is that species deliminations via genetics, like, yep, that's all great and there's, there's some great evidence there for species being split and whatnot, but you have to be careful with the analysis you're doing if your sampling design is, uh, I suppose the best word is flawed, although that seems a little bit harsh. I don't mean it in like a harsh way. It's not meant to be like a, a dig or anything, but basically the point is, is that the methods aren't sensitive to certain um, setups. So the, the example that they're using is, is milk snakes, I think, um, in the States. And there was a paper that was saying that there were X number of milk snakes, but they sort of come back and say, no, that's, that's oversplit. It's oversplit, basically, because if, you, if you're using this particular um, set of analytical techniques, it will split species when it should not really do anything because the data is not adequate. To be confident. So the times that it's this is occurring is when you have a gradient of a species. So uh, quite a wide area. Is it putting one in the uh, middle? Yeah, basically if you it exact that was their example. They had some from east, some from west. You've got some sp- some specimens from the middle, but ha- perhaps not enough. And then they sort of ran the analysis with different splits along the way and basically showed if you if you threw this data into this analysis method, you'd produce two different splits with high support regardless because it, it, it's just a method that tends to split things um, irrespective. It's, it's not sensitive to detecting a gradient, basically. It's, it's not going to pick that up. If you ask it to split it, it'll do its job and it will try and split it and, and provide you with it. And therefore, the confidence is a little bit duff because it's not particularly suited to detecting this certain sort of setup. Right. Um, that being said, you know, these methods, it, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, everything that's used these methods is inadequate. Quite the contrary, because these methods are good and they do work. It's just you have to be aware of their limitations when applying it to data or specific um, scenarios where they might be inappropriate. Um the upshot is, and why I'm bringing it up, is we've said multiple times throughout previous episodes that we don't go into the detail of species of the bi-week enough to be able to detect or comment on how robust the species splits are. You know, we've, numerous times we've said, number one, either we just, you know, we don't know about these species because we can't study everything. We're in two quite different niches in two different parts of the world. There's no way we have absolutely anything particularly informed to say about South American snake species and taxonomy in general. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, like totally, totally out of our depth. There's no expertise there whatsoever. We have to go purely on what the paper is saying. And we also don't have the time nor the expertise to go into the methodological or analytical techniques to make sure that it's been 
done uh, in an appropriate fashion. So this was just a nice paper that summed up the some of the subtleties in splitting species, even using good genetic data, um, is it's still relatively... Well, it's, it's possible to make incorrect splits if you're not aware of how the analysis is, is dealing with things like gradients and the actual spatial, spatial structure of your sampling. Mm. Cool. So it basically is a very long-winded caveat saying that, you know, just because we're saying it's a new species of something doesn't make... Uh, we're, we're not commenting on the quality of papers or the robustness of, of anything. Yeah. Occasionally we will notice something's bad, but it's uh, it's luck, not judgment. <laughs> it is. I mean, the one that I was surprised in, at, I mean, maybe it was covered in another paper some, some time with the, these guys using their, the Bayesian trees and then comparing it to maximum likelihood trees. But the Bayesian stuff is run on uninformative or, or uniform priors, and it's being presented like a separate analysis to the maximum likelihood when really if you're running it on uninformative priors, they should be identical because that's just maximum likelihood if you don't have informative priors. Or as far as I understand it, it is. Mm. And then you got a lot of papers. I mean, I was, I was thinking back to some other papers where they've said they've used used Bayesian stuff and I don't remember having priors described whatsoever. And like stuff like that, while not, you know, it doesn't undermine the paper as such, it's not best practice to leave out and things like that. But we're not going to bring that up in this stuff because it's it's dry and again I don't it, we we don't you know we don't know these methods we don't know what's actually appropriate for these papers but the point is people who do know what's appropriate and have put the effort into test this stuff are highlighting that there may be potential oversplitting when species are widespread and there are pitfalls in the sampling design. Mm. So cool, yeah. And um, as ever, we're always happy to accept criticism on our uh, species of the bi-week choices. Some of them are sometimes well, controversial. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other, the other time with the um, the, the turtle. Uh, turtle. Yeah. It's exactly that. That's a widespread species. Um, and it could have fallen into some of the flaws that Chambers and uh, Hillis are highlighting. I, d- I don't know. Mm. Mm. But the point is that there are... I just read it as a paper and was like, hmm, that's something that people should be aware of that even if it isn't, uh, even if they've got good genetic data, if it's not sampled in a way and certain um, things are looked at, i.e. species gradients, then you might get erroneous descriptions or erroneous splits, I suppose. Gotcha. Right, so have you got any other business other than that? Yeah, I did want to highlight another another paper. Oh, go on. Just to make up for the lack of lack of podcast there's <laughs> um, a paper by Catala Pierda, I guess. Sorry if I've, well, I've obviously butchered that name by just being not very good with words. I think the apology um, was implicit in how underconfidently you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, it's a 2019 paper popped out over the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Conserving evolutionary history does not result in greater diversity over geological timescales. I thought that this was a really interesting, neat paper. Again, something that we've brought up previously. We, uh, I think we had a whole episode chatting about a paper that was looking at edge, the, um, the metric for evolutionarily distinct 
something something. What, what I forget what edge stands for, but basically the point um, was. Oh, what is it? Uh, it pr- prioritized. It, yeah. yeah, you got it. Yeah, yeah. It's like an organization which yeah prioritizes species which need conservation based on different metrics, isn't it? Yeah, edge edge does a, a combination of distinctiveness and uh, evolutionary human distinctiveness or something like that, and something yeah, and something something. Yeah, I forget the end, but the point is this evolutionary distinctiveness thing. The, the assumption is that if you protect, protect these sort of distinct lineages, that's going to give a greater capacity for diversity to recover in the future. That's the sort of general idea behind it, right? Yeah. How on earth do you work out whether that's true or not? Because you're not going to sit around and wait for that to happen and then be like, yep, that was a great idea. Yep, that wasn't a good idea. And because, you know, we've we got to make decisions now today to conserve species and unfortunately we don't have the resources to conserve everything so there is a need to prioritize how do we prioritize so these guys basically wanted to answer whether protecting distinct species is the right choice or whether we should be protecting species that are high diversifiers i.e lineages that are quite species rich currently and look like they're undergoing speciation as we speak or well, their, their third subset was just randomly pick species, whether that would actually do as good a job. But you can't answer that right now because these things take time. You don't know what these species are going to do. So what they did was do a sort of paleo approach, roll back the clocks and pretended, okay, if we were hanging around in year whatever, several million years ago, and we decided to protect X number of species based on these criteria at the time, what would have happened? How would the uh, biodiversity have changed? Protect, protect Velociraptor, mate, for sure. Well, exactly. Like, would would the Velociraptor have been worth the worth your effort, mate? Aren't would it have th- actually given more uh, diverse <laughs> species later down the line, or would it have just been an e- evolutionary sort of dead end? Yeah. It would have turned into birds. So Maybe. it depends how you feel about birds. Me personally, yeah, let Velociraptor die out. <laughs> <laughs> But this is a thing. At the time, you don't know what's going to go on. So no. that's what's this really nice approach of, okay, well, we'll look at some time that we did know and hypothetically let some species die out and let some species continue. And essentially, what they found was it's really, really difficult to predict anything, to be to be blunt. That's, that's what it sort of comes across as. Because um, really looking at those distinct ones... That doesn't seem to produce any better results than just working randomly. If anything, it produces slightly worse results. Yeah. Um, the sort of species, the opposite, picking species rich, is about equivalent to the to the random one. What they sort of suggest might be a decent indicator is the actual shape of the tree, um, but that's pretty inappropriate for conservation decisions because we don't have complete knowledge on tree shape because we don't know where it's going to go. So. Really, it was one of one of their conclusions was okay. Evolutionary distinctiveness might not actually be a good shout, or phylo sorry phylogenetic distinctiveness. So actual genetic distinctiveness. Um, yes, yeah, whatever. Same same term. Whatever um, might not be a great way of picking species. Like it can still be used, but you can't justify it via it'll produce greater diversity at the end of the day. So there's that little reasoning behind it removed. I mean, yes, yeah. you can still justify it via we want this species because it's weird and wonderful. 
but just don't go justifying it based on it has the capacity to produce greater diversity down the line if we pick all these distinctive ones. Mm. It's kind of like the platypus seems like a plateau of weirdness, right? Same right. with the echidna. It's like that thing is weird. Um, it's distinct. I don't. It's weird. Inter- yeah, but you don't think just because it's distinct and weird that suddenly this egg-laying, bonkers, duck-beat monstrosity is going to suddenly um, speciate a hundred times and no. become like the next amazing, rich diversification of mammal life. You just think, right? It's weird and cool. Yeah. So you're kind of looking either forwards or backwards. Where we've been looking backwards, and now they want to try and look forwards. Yeah, so one of the other sort of aspects of the phylogenetic phylogenetic distinctiveness thing is you're protecting a wide array of species. Therefore, there's some species to deal with almost any scenario. You've got that diversity. So no matter what happens, you're probably going to have some species that will survive and then be capable of diversifying. But essentially what they... So maybe phylogenetic distinctiveness isn't what you should be looking at and more uh, sort of trait diversity or something along those lines something where you're actually covering all the basis um for future scenarios i don't know it's it's, again it's a difficult one to tell because you it's not something that you can perform an experiment on you know you can't manipulate the scenario and see what species do better it's kind of weird as well because what's the end game of this are we trying to are we trying to maintain and preserve uh, functional biodiverse ecosystems that will keep our life support system going? Or are we yes. looking further? Yeah, that's basically it, isn't it? We don't care. Because yeah. once humans have died out, Earth will re-evolve a rich plethora of life regardless. Yeah, and I think I, part, part, of it's, part of it's that. Um, it, it, is a, it is a difficult question to think about with scales because these guys are working with geological scales essentially that's that you know because it takes so long for things to split or diversify or recover from from these sort of things but uh, really one of their one of their parting comments was this sort of overall diversity seems to be more driven by um, uh, what's the term they used idiosyncratic macroevolutionary events so basically hey it's really hard to predict. Uh, I take it as a we should just think of better justifications for justifying uh, species protection that aren't utilitarian, maybe, or or maybe mm-hmm. they are sort of functional. Or we should be looking at ecosystem-wide stuff. Or I don't know. It, it made me sort of think about the species level uh, conservation priorities and wondering if that whole whole thing is a little bit duff devil's advocate when i think we should just carry on what we are doing if it's fluffy and endearing let it stay <laughs> <laughs> if it's ugly scaly possibly slimy uh, and not a turtle step on it while you protect the fluffy thing yeah yeah if it's a turtle yeah. it gets a pass well turtles do get a free pass yeah um i don't know why because they're adorable yeah are they i mean they sort of are they are cute. I do. But like, like if you look at if you look at a turtle and then you look at I don't know some sort of day gecko. I mean, there's yeah. no competition. Day geckos are endearing. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But no, I mean, it's an interesting perspective. It's cool that they did that. Went back in time. I thought it was. I thought it was a really awesome idea of, for a paper, and yeah. I think it was done well, as far as I could tell, with my limited idea of paleo stuff and, and phylogenetics. 
that it was really cool. It, I mean, it made me think about some cool stuff, and I thought it was—I thought it was good. I thought it was really interesting. Cool. I hope I haven't misrepresented what their sort of conclusions were. I'm sure you haven't, mate. So uh, yeah, we also have a new Patreon who we should thank. Um, yeah. So thank you very much, Miles Masterson. Thank uh, you. Big, massively appreciative for that. And um, if anyone else wants to support the podcast, we are going to be back on track doing them regularly now. Um, apologies for the hiatus, but you can do that patreon.com slash herb highlights. Um, we also sell t-shirts, just Google herb highlights or herpetological highlights and red bubble. You'll find various t-shirts, mugs, all sorts of fun stuff with, uh, yeah. with reptiles and amphibians on it. Um, yeah, you can follow us on Facebook dot com slash herb highlights uh, you can tweet us at herb highlights and you can email us herb highlights at gmail dot com yeah get in touch if we've made any horrible glaring mistakes mm. or if you know of a non I was going to sort of American species I'd just like to snake, open it up I think I'd just like to know which, if you know of a snake uh, breeds in mating balls yeah yeah any snake that has mating balls or any kind of social mating you know big group style yeah we're breeding aggregation would breeding be the aggregation term, is the right? scientific term orgy yeah. is the non-scientific term uh, you could make it scientific yeah just write it in a paper and then it's <laughs> <laughs> but that's it I think all that remains to say is thank you for listening Yeah, thank you for listening. Sorry this one was a bit late. Bye.